He had fared often abroad as a leader in the wars that the Numenorians made then in the coastlands of Middle-earth, seeking to extend their dominion over men. And thus, he had won great renown as a captain both by land and by sea. to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, the show where we look at Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. I am joined today by your host, Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Feanor, son of Finwë, king of the Noldor. And I'm joined by Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Inzilbeth, our Farazone's grandmother and a member of the faithful. Excellent. Uh, well, we have a really great show today. There is so much being released every single day about I'm the drowning. upcoming Rings of Power I'm trilogy. Drowning. We're drowning. <laughs> we have so much to cover. We feel, uh, you know, a little frantic, um, but we have a really cool deep dive today. So we're going to be talking all about our Farazone. Um, comicbook.com released an article that introduces Farazone of Numenor, an exclusive. Um, there's been a lot of these articles, deep dives into characters from the Rings of Power. So today we're going to look at Farazone and get to know this character um, and talk about a lot of what we see from the books about our mm-hmm. Farazone, the, the, uh, who becomes the king of Numenor. Because at, by this point, we have heard quite a bit from Tristan Gravel, who is the actor that portrays Farazone. We've seen him at the San Diego Comic-Con. We've uh, now had this great kind of in-depth interview with him in comicbook.com. So we have enough fodder, I think, to really be able to compare book Farazone with what we're likely to see in show Farazone and um, kind of exploring how those differ and but the underlying themes. And, and I'm just really, I'm really excited for this character, really, really excited um, with what they're going to be doing with him. Oh, me too. Um, and, and Tristan Gravel, early on, early on, one of the earliest leaks that we got from Fellowship of Fans about the actors was that he was a powerhouse on set. He he would steal scenes. He was just a, a really a whirlwind force. And that's what you want from a Farazone character, right? So uh, I was always excited to hear that. And Absolutely. I think what we've heard from him in interviews mirrors that. He's very, very thoughtful and brings a lot to this character. Right. So I guess without further ado, I really want to just give a little bit of background on who Farazone is in the books. And we're not going to do a full a full character uh, biography here because, you know, that would take us all the way through to the end of the show. I'm more interested in who Farazone is at the start of the show. When we're starting Rings of Power, episode one, who is Farazone? You know, what kind of guy is he? What's his background? What are the things in his past and his present that are going to inform his character? You know, whether the conflicts, the, the motivators, you know, what is inside this guy that we're about to see embark on this epic journey that ultimately ends in the Spoiler alert, downfall of Numenor. And uh, we, we should do that spoiler alert at the top of the episode. We are, of course, going to be talking about the show. So um, we're going to be spoiling a lot of stuff here. So I want to start this character deep dive by talking about his name, because that's what the professor would do. He said, give me a name and then I'll tell you a story. So I think that's a respectful place to start. Farazone means golden in Adunayak and is derived from the word pharaohs, meaning gold. And Adonaiic is the language of the Numenorians. It's uh, derived from the Manish language that they spoke when they were in Middle-earth, and they carried it with them into Numenor. But for much of Numenor's history, they would speak Quenya. Um, They would speak an Elvish tongue, especially for ceremonial things, and the kings would take Quenya names. Adonaiic persisted. It was still a part of the, the culture for all that time, but Elvish was still the primary language being spoken. But in the later years, as Numenor started to darken, uh, they 
rejected the Elvish languages and embraced Adonaiic, and so the king started taking Adonaiic names. That's an, an important little piece of ordinary that's, I think, important to this character. So Pharazone becomes our Pharazone when he becomes king because the prefix R means high or king. And so it had become a tradition for all the other kings of Numenor who took their royal names in Adonaiic to add R to their names. So I think that to really understand Pharazone as a character, we can learn a lot by considering his genealogy. Because there's not a whole lot on Pharazone, who he is to start out with. Right. In the Akalabath, which is the portion of the Silmarillion that focuses on Numenor and the downfall of Numenor, really everything you see of Pharazone is about the downfall. He seizes the scepter basically in the second sentence. You know, you're introduced to Pharazone, and then he seizes the scepter from Tarmuriel and... Uh, which says a lot right there. Like, we already have a lot of information right there about his character, yeah. about the type of person this is. Even the fact that Farazon means golden, mm-hmm. we see this already reflected in the series. He's got the gold on his fingers right. and his, you know, his body, et cetera. Right, right. So the professor doesn't really dwell too much on who he was. How did he get to be Farazon? You know, who was Farazon the child? He doesn't really talk about that or explore it in narrative form. Uh, I mean, the whole of Calabeth is sort of told at a distance, more history book fashion, but it picks up. The narrative gets a little more detailed when he seizes the scepter and we see him get manipulated by Sauron and the whole downfall. But we don't really understand how he gets to be who he is. The only thing that we can look to for some of that information to explore his, his background is his genealogy. Who's his dad? Who's his granddad? Who's his grandmother? And uh, I think actually, and I had never really looked at it that way before. So in researching for this episode, I learned a lot about Farazon and started thinking a little differently about him. So Farazon's father is Tar Palantir's brother. So Tar Palantir is the king at the time the show starts. And Tarmiriel is his daughter. So he's the king. He's one of the faithful. And Farazon is his nephew. Now Farazon, I had forgotten this, is also descended from the lords of Andunia. And therefore is also kin to Elendil. Farazon's great, great grandfather was the lord of Andunia. So that's where... Elendil and Farazon sort of match up. Actually, El- Elendil's father, Amandil, they're sort of the same generation. So Amandil and Farazon's great-great-grandfather was the same person. It was the Lord of Andunia. Now, the Lords of Andunia, as a reminder, were descended from Elros. They are also of the king's line, a descendant of Elros, Elrond's brother. But they, they're a branch of that line through Silmarion, who is the eldest daughter of the fourth king of Numenor. Now, she couldn't inherit the scepter because the law at that time didn't allow it. The law at that time required it to be a male heir. Now, harken back to one of our early episodes, Aldarian and Arendus. Aldarian, who was a later king, I think the sixth king or you know, shortly after that, he changed the law to allow the eldest sibling or the eldest child, whether it's male or female, to inherit the scepter. But at, So it's kind of interesting. The Lords of Andunia kind of ever after were probably wondering, man, if only they changed the law a little bit later we would be the ones who are inheriting the scepter because Silmarion would have been queen mm-hmm. and you know all of her children would have uh, been entitled to sit in the throne. But you know, as luck would have it or their lack of luck, that's not what happened. So the lords of Andunia are, still are of royal lineage but are not you know, going to inherit the kingship at any point. Unless you know, the entirety of Numenor is destroyed and the only people left are the lords of Andunia. But that would never happen. That would never happen. That would never happen. Don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> But even though they were never in line, really, to inherit the throne, they were always counselors to the king, and they were among the most powerful and influential lords. They, they pretty much led the faithful. And as a reminder, the faithful 
is that group that remains loyal to the Valar and the elves, even after the rest of the Numenorians started turning against them. So they were, they remained faithful and pretty much led the faith, but they were faithful in secret, especially as Numenor started to darken and the faithful started getting persecuted. You might wonder, well, how can they remain counselors to the king and be the be faithful, or they, they were kind of cagey about that. They were very political. So I think this is an area where politics, the sort of Game of Thronesian politics can come into play because the Lords of Andunia, the good guys, are in some ways kind of turncoats. They're a bit two-faced. They're counselors to the king, but they're also secretly working with the faithful, not to undermine the throne, but to maintain the faith, you know, to stay true to their beliefs. But the king and those loyal to the king would certainly consider all of their activities to be acts of rebellion. They would consider the faithful to be two-faced. So that's why the faithful always had to be secretive about what they were doing. Yeah, it's a very, uh, they're, they're walking a tightrope. Yeah. Um, and this is where we're going to first see Numenor is like the tension has already right. started. There's already tension between the faithful and those who want to sort of, you know, abandon those ways and, and depart from the influence yeah. of the elves and maybe conquer new lands, et cetera. So this is really important background information for the show, all of this right. history. Well, and I'll be really, really curious to see exactly where in the development of that tension the show begins because we know there's time compression. And we've also mm-hmm. heard them talk about how Farazone is going to be kind of, instead of seeing the multi-generational decay of Numenor like it happens in the books, they're going to compress it into one generation and really into one man that's Farazone. you know we've right. gotten some indications right. that he will start not as an overtly hostile person uh, when it comes to the faithful that's been implied but i it's kind of unclear and i don't know exactly where it'll be and we've seen other articles where they say that there are tensions already existing so yes and also we've heard the actors say oh it's at a tipping point Numenor is at right. a tipping point yes it's at the height of its grandeur but it's also there's a lot of discord brewing yeah so we'll so. see exactly where it's at. I would bet that it's kind of people, there's discontent, but it hasn't crystallized into like a formal party. You know, the Kingsmen is not a party. You know, it's it's a one-party system still, but a second party is about to break off, you know, and Farazon's going to get his name on the ballot at some point in this series. But it, so it's, mm-hmm. you know, right at, as you, as you said, right at that tipping point, people are getting upset and they're about to start handing out pamphlets and having secret meetings in bars because they want to overthrow the king. I, I think you're probably right, but we'll see. So getting back to Farazon, his great-great-grandfather was the Lord of Andunia. Now, that, that seems ancient to me. I don't have any context for who my great-great-grandfather was. But in Numenor, remember, these people live hundreds of years. And so, if, yes, children are born later then as well. You know, their their parents are more like 60, 70 when they're born. But nonetheless... Sounds like the Bay Area. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've told me you've told me that parents are uh, pretty old on average in the Bay Area. It's, it's, <laughs> it's true. It's 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 all good. If you're th- regularly living to 300, 350 years old, at least the uh, royal line is living that long. You're going to know your grandparents, your great grandparents, and maybe your great great grandparents, and at least they will be closer in terms of living memory, right? So his great-grandmother was the Lord of Andunia, was the, or rather the sister of the Lord of Andunia, and his grandmother was the cousin to the Lord of Andunia. So just his grandmother. He's like, hey, Grandma, you know, can you make me your chicken noodle soup? I love you. 
by the way, you know, grandma's going to hang out with the Lord of Andunier. There's a closeness there. So he grew up very aware of his closeness to the Lord of Andunier. I would have to imagine that's the case. So even though it's, they're hundreds of years apart, he's not like fully sundered from that line. Now, family, Farazone's family, we've already talked about how Farazone takes Tarmiriel to marriage by force, whether it's like, you know, rape, which is kind of what I always envisioned, or it's some sort of like political maneuver. Farazone's not the first in his family to do that, as it turns out. His family has a history of marrying women that didn't really want to marry what? them. Yeah. Shady yeah. roots. Shady, shady. <laughs> his grandfather, Gimilzor, which a name like Gimilzor, you know you're up to no good. That's just no oh, yeah. shade to the dwarves, but that's a dwarvish name. It's got like a lot of consonants. It's kind of guttural. Like, oh, Gimilzor, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just sounds yeah. evil. Farazone's grandfather, Gilmazor, who's king of Numenor, married Farazone's grandmother, who was cousin to the Lord of Andunier. And she wasn't keen on it because she was of the faithful, as the lords of Andunier and their family generally are. So she didn't really want to marry Farazone, who was uh, um, Farazone's grandfather, who was definitely not one of the faithful. But we get this line from the Akalabeth, quote, Gimilzor took her to wife, though this was little to her liking, for she was in heart one of the faithful, being taught by her mother. But the kings and their sons were grown proud and not to be gainsaid in their wishes, no love was there between Argimilzor and his queen or between their sons. So a little loveless marriage between the grandparents. So Farazone grew up in that tradition. You know, just take what you want. Take who you want. They don't have to like love you. Like father, like yeah. son. Shame, shame, deep, shame. Deep, deep. You know, grandfather. When your granddad's doing And it. we already know that there's tension between he and his son, Kemen, yeah, based on the interviews that we saw, which we'll, I think we're going to get to that. right. In a little bit, but that relationship, I'm very, I'm very interested to, to be explored. Farazorn and, Ke- and Kemen is a relationship I'm looking forward to um, learning more about. It seems like uh, we've got, you know, the spoiled rich kid Kemen and this, the father who's obsessed with his legacy, like pushing his son to do more, be more. Yeah. Um, like it, it's almost a tale as old yeah. as time, but you love you love to see. But this, I've, I'm very curious about that dynamics. one as well. You know, uh, What's the nature of their tension? You know, does is Kemen does he really love and look up to his father, and he wants to be like him and impress him? And Farazone's um, withholding that approval. Is it that type of dynamic? Do or do they actually not see eye to eye, and they are disagree with each other fully? Like Kemen's his own man, and he wants to go his own way. They could do a lot with that character. Exactly. We know it's a tense relationship, and who doesn't like to see daddy issues played out on screen? Let's (laughs) be honest. We've all got them. We all want yeah. to see them. <laughs> Just kidding. So Farazone's grandfather marries an unwilling grandmother. Um, and by this time, the king's men were firmly entrenched. And the king's men had held the throne for nearly 400 years. So this had been going on for a long time. This is in Farazone's grandfather's time, 400 years. Um, and the kings had been taking Adonite names rather than Quenya names. But when Gimilzor married a cousin of the Lord of Andunier, he brought one of the faithful into his house, and that resulted in a, a split in the family. So his eldest son took after his mother and became one of the faithful. And his younger son, which was Farazon's father, remained the king's man and ultimately became the leader of the king's men. In fact, it says that to him, Argimilzor would have yielded the scepter rather than to the elder son if the laws had allowed. So what an ugly relationship Farazon witnessed mm. between his father and his father's brother, Tar Palantir. You know, Farazone's granddad loved Farazone's dad. 
resent, like didn't like Tar Palantir, wanted to give the scepter to Farazone's dad, but by law had to yield it to Tar Palantir. So imagine being raised in that environment. Farazone is descended from a long line of kingsmen. His father probably resented Tar Palantir and probably thought that he should have been king since he was his dad's favorite. His dad was a leader of an active rebellion, undermining the king and his uncle, Tar Palantir. So Farazone, you know, he's, he's cutting his teeth as a young man. He's sitting at his, his dad's side when he's holding meetings with the rebellion, talking about ways to actively and covertly subvert and undermine Tar Palantir's rule. And so this has, you know, been beaten into him from an early, early age. This, all of this really does remind me of a lot of the English warfare, back and forth, internal political workings of the, the Catholics versus the Protestant and the, mm. the Wars of the Roses, for example, and the, just how that played out in entire families and with, um, with them grappling over control and power and, and the kingship or queenship, as it, as it were. And I wonder how influential that was in these writings. Because it sounds pretty darn familiar. Right, right. Well, and that's probably <laughs> historically. That's probably a conflict that has repeated itself in a variety of different uh, cultures, right? And among the royal lines of many cultures. Oh, sure. You know, which I'm sure, all of which I'm sure Tolkien was pretty familiar with. You know, he was influenced by a variety mm-hmm. of different sources, not just English or European, but um, going further abroad yeah, than that. absolutely. So now we get to, so we've heard about Farazone in his youth. Well, we haven't heard about Farazone in his youth, but we know who his dad was and his granddad. They were kingsmen all the way. And so you can imagine that King's, Farazone as an adult never wavered. He was a kingsman. What we do get in the Calabeth about him and his character was that he may have been worse than his dad right off the bat. So <laughs> Gimelzor dies. It, it says Tar Palantir maybe thought that he that would be an end to his troubles because now the leader of his of the rebellion that was trying to undermine him is gone. But he would get no such relief because Farazone, son of Gimilcad, had become a man yet more restless and eager for wealth and power than his father. More restless and eager for wealth and power. These are not good good qualities. It also says he was already a no, a renowned leader and warrior. So, quote, he had fared often abroad as a leader in the wars that the Numenorians made then in the coastlands of Middle-earth, seeking to extend their dominion over men. And thus he had won great renown as a captain, both by land and by sea. Now, I want to point out, I would not characterize these as honorable wars. You know, Numenor is already pretty far down the slope of its fall because the Numenorians are making war upon the men of Middle-earth, seeking to extend their dominion over men. So, you know, we know elsewhere that it gets really bad that, I mean, they're really almost enslavers. They are subjugating the men of Middle-earth. So whereas the Numerans came and helped the middlemen and the middlemen kind of revered them as almost like gods, the later Numenorians of whom Farazone was a part, they were subjugating the middlemen and treating them like crap, you know, which is probably drove a lot of the middlemen into Sauron's waiting arms, right? So Farazone was a part of that. And that was what made him popular and well-known. He was a renowned warrior and leader because he was helping to make war upon the middlemen. Yeah, it's the 
It's the greed theme, you know, being driven home. Once again, they could just not be content on their island, this blissful island they'd been given. They decided they had to conquer, and that was sort of the beginning of right. the end. Always wanting more, always more and more, just hunger, hunger, hunger. So he was also well-loved by the people. Quote, therefore, when he came back to Numenor, hearing of his father's death, the hearts of the people were turned to him, for he brought with him great wealth and was for the time free in his giving. So this also tracks what we've heard about Farazan in the show, is that he is loved and trusted by the people and the various guilds. And we'll talk about that more later when we get into the article. But uh, I, I think that so far what we're seeing in the show is tracking. You know, he is well-loved. The people like him. Now, getting people to like you by giving away money, it's not, I think there's an implication there that. Worked for Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. The, probably the first and only time peop, anybody is going to compare Oprah to our Farazon. <laughs> but you heard it here first, folks. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, this is not a, a deep reverence. It's not based on any any sort of character trait that should be revered. He's giving away his money. Now, I mean, being generous with your money is certainly a good quality. Being charitable in that way is a good thing. But it implies that there is sort of a... A, strate- a strategic element to his generosity. He was for the time free in his giving. Now that you could read that two ways. You could read it as he was good at first and then he turns bad and he stopped being free in his giving. I kind of read it as it wasn't genuine. It wasn't in good faith. It was even then at the earliest times mm-hmm. he was giving away freely to try and uh, gain influence. Right. It's all about his motivations. It's all about his motivation behind it. We already know he's a person who is eager, mm-hmm. you know, for greatness. And so you have to assume he's not totally benevolent in in his in his motivation and what he's what he's doing. It's clearly not just to, you know, bless his people and make them great among men. It's I think it's obvious that it's for his own personal There's gain. A just my there. personal opinion. Yeah. But the fun thing here with these lines, and because we get so little about him in the early days, and even about his character, we get more about his conduct. I think there's a lot of vagueness here to be played with by anybody who's taking an, a creative approach to an adaptation. Um, you can you can read things different ways. You can there's a lot of room to explore. So I'm excited to see a different version. I would have if if I were at the helm, I would have just said, "All right, Farazon, bat from the beginning." Like he'll he'll get maybe not as bad he will get worse, but he will start sort of in the middle. Um, but there, I think the showrunners are taking a different tact. They're starting him more uh, really at the beginning, where he starts out as a genuinely caring person who really cares about Numenor, and then there's an arc there. And we've heard the theme: how far will you go to protect what you love? I think that's going to apply strongly to Farazon. I think that his choices are all going to be in service of Numenor, or at least he believes that. And that is something I would not really have considered. I wouldn't have approached Farazon from the perspective of someone who really had Numenor's best intentions at heart. And I, I love that. I love that they're doing that, and it makes me think about the character in a new way, and I think, frankly, a better way. Yeah, he's definitely going to be a secondary villain. It, it sounds like he'll have, obviously, he's going to be more complex than just, oh, this is the villain. He's going to have a really complex backstory and character. Right. A, a little bit more Tony Soprano than Hannibal Lecter, I think. <laughs> right. Now, I want to circle back here as a reminder of his connections to Elendil, who's going to be another main character in the show. So in the books, not only is he related to El- Elendil by blood, 
It's not just a technicality, but he was a childhood friend of Elendil's father, Amundil. Amundil was also a mighty captain, and he was a leader of the faithful. So Farazan, even though he is a dyed-in-the-wool kingsman, he grew up running the fields and, you know, doing boat stuff. I was trying to think of like a good metaphor, like a good reference to boating. I don't know, tugging on sails. What do boat people do? But he was doing boat stuff with Amundil all growing up. You know, they were buddies. Uh, even though they had different, I guess you could say, religious or politi- political beliefs, one being a kingsman, one being of the faithful, they were very, very close. Quote, in the days of their youth together, Amundil had been dear to Farazon, and though he was of the elf friends, he remained in his council until the coming of Sauron. So Amundil, as the Lord of Andunia, continued to be a counselor to Farazon, even though they were politically at odds, and I'm sure openly. And Farazon nonetheless kept him in his service because of that close, that close childhood friendship. But Sauron comes in and really kind of twists the knife and makes things worse. And so as a result, Amundil is dismissed as, as a counselor. So Amundil is the Lord of Andunia, not Elendil. Elendil is his son. Um, I would suspect, and we're about to get, get into the show a little bit more here with the article, but I would suspect that they're going to do away with Amundil altogether. We're not going to see Amundil. We're just going to see Elendil. And they're going to present Elendil and Farazon as um, sort of peers who had grown up together rather than Amundil. That, that would be my guess. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Which I guess I'm fine with, but I really love the, the Amundil character. This is a bit of a side note. But Amundil, when things really start to go south and he can see that Farazon is getting his ships ready to make an assault on Valinor, he's like, oh, this is bad. This is not a good idea. Amundil tries to pull in Eärendil and sail to Valinor to again plead for the Valar's aid and mercy. Now, we, never, we don't know what happens to him. We don't know if he sinks on the way, if he makes it there and dies, or we don't, you know, because it, the ban of the Valar forbids the Numenorians from going to Valinor. So he was risking the wrath of the Valar by breaking that ban and going there to ask for their help. Of course, Eärendil did the same thing, and the Valar ultimately came. And so Amundil was hoping hoping against hope that they would be merciful and, and help in some way, intervene in some way to save Numenor from the influence of Sauron and the decline of, of Farazon and really the majority of the people in Numenor. Obviously, they didn't pan out. Numenor still sank, and we have no idea what happened to Amundil. So the, it's like Yarendil, but much more tragic because his efforts were fruitless, and he probably died in the attempt. Man, that story really reminds me. It's very reminiscent of King Theoden um, taking in, you know, Wormtongue and casting out other trusted advisors, you know, for the sake of this other um, evil advisor who kind of is whispering in his ear and being led astray in that way, even though he obviously has good intent. I think I think it's a really similar story, and it is a little bit of a shame we won't see Amadil, yeah. but... Um, Again, if Elendil fulfills that purpose in some way. Yeah. Um, and you know what? It's okay. I, even though in my heart of hearts, I, I want to see every single character portrayed in their fullness, you know, and, and every uh, narrative thread explored fully, you know, you think you want that. I, of course, can concede that it is necessary not to have that. But the more I think about it, I almost feel like it's better and more fun to leave some things to the books, you know, because even if the Rings of Power is perfect in every respect in terms of just quality it's just a great great show and we all love it and it mm-hmm. has a place in our hearts right next to peter jackson's trilogy it's great to leave some things to the books 
because then fans of Rings of Power, they're going to talk to their friend who read the books and they're going to say, yeah, I love the show too, but there's some other, there's this other character and this other character and this other cool thing and this other story. And there's this other, you know, there's this metaphor that you find if you look for it. And uh, so leaving some stuff out to be found in the books creates sort of a path of discovery for people who are loving the show to find more and discover Tolkien through the show and like moving on to the books. So maybe it's good. They're leaving out Amandil and leaving that for the, for the new fans to read when they pick up the book. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that they have based so many of these characters on real care on real mm -hmm. characters in the book and maybe combined some and taken storylines from others and placed them. So it's still going to feel very, very much like the characters we know and love, even if it's not, even if they're different in name and, um, you know, storyline. Hello, everyone. My name is Jordan Rennells, and with my friend Katie, we are both working to create and share art for all of our favorite fandoms at Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. We have bookmarks, so many stickers, earrings, prints of all sizes, super small, and all the way up to 24 by 30 inches to really show off all of your favorite characters. We have coloring books, keychains, and always more on the way. So if you want a Hobbit Hole bookmark or a set of Legend of Zelda Korok earrings, stickers for all of your favorite Marvel characters, or a big wall art poster of the Night's Watch Vows words so that you can recite them every time you need to pump yourself up, head over to 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. You can even use the code WATCHPARTY10 to get a 10% discount. That's Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. All right, so we've talked about Farazon. We know who he is in the books, who he is at the start of this narrative. What does this comicbook.com interview tell us? And it's a great interview. I just pulled out a couple nuggets here. So this is the author writes, as the Rings of Power begins, Farazon is a great seafarer and soldier that has returned home to settle into middle age and a new position as advisor to Numenor's queen regent. So that kind of tracks. Great seafarer, great soldier. Mm -hmm. We know that's true. What's a little bit different here is in the Akalabeth, he returns home because his father dies. And that's part of the reason that the people, their hearts go out to him because his father's dead. So they, they feel a lot of sympathy for him. And then he's also a great leader and all that. So it kind of comes together in this perfect storm of, of uh, you know, being politically desirable, right? Um, here he is being, and we'll hear this in the next quote, he's being brought home to help Queen Muriel. He's being asked to come home to help. Nothing about his father dying or anything like that. Um, he was he was still battling. He's still got the gusto and he's ready to go sail, but he's being called home to serve. So, quote, we see a man whose seafaring days, whose warrior days are not behind him, but he's got to take on a different role now. His cousin, Queen Muriel, is now the queen regent. Her father's ill. So she is in his stead ruling Numenor. And so she needs some help from her cousin, who is Farazon, who has the ear of all the guildsmen, who has the ear of all the people of Numenor, and so is the man to bring the island together to listen to Queen Muriel. So very much at the moment, he's an advisor, a chancellor, and very much a public servant. And it's not a job or a task that he is reluctant to do. He has a very, very deep love for his island and for his kingdom. So this was a paragraph that just jumped out at me. Fascinating, just you know, fascinating mm -hmm. description of the character. Yeah. And you mentioned before, I wonder if they're going to totally exclude the cousin aspect. And I don't think they're going to. Well, I now, think it's yeah. clear. 
that they're they're cousins and uh it makes it somehow more nefarious in the mind of us westerners a little right. bit whether the, you know um i just think that's interesting that they're definitely including that piece of a little bit of uh a little bit of incest yeah in there, yeah. which is true to the book that is that is the way that the relationship is in the book um but yeah this is this is interesting already more political intrigue than we're used to right she's putting her faith in the wrong person she's calling him back um and saying i need you you're the ear of the guildsman i need you to help help me do this and uh, right yeah little did she know yeah and so he's already established as a leader not just over soldiers He's a leader of men in Numenor. He's already well-respected. It says he has the ear of all the guildsmen. He has the ear of all the people of Numenor. So somehow he has already amassed a significant amount of political capital that Queen Muriel is asking him to bring to bear in her favor to help sort of govern the people. Um, and that's, so that's really, really fascinating. It's not that he is coming home as a triumphant warrior and then he amasses uh, that political capital through his history as a warrior. He already has it. And and maybe it's not even something different. It's just where we're picking up the story. You know, it could have been that his father died 20 years ago and he came home and and uh, started developing the love of the people at that point. But he was still soldiering and warrioring for 20 years. Um, and then Muriel calls him back. So it's, it's not like I'm not trying to point out a difference, quote unquote. It's just um, interesting to see what they've taken from the Calabeth and the way they've teased it out. And... Uh, I like, I really like this, frankly. I really like this version of Ferris that we're seeing. And I love character arcs and transformations. And it sounds like we are getting a really eager Ferris who really loves his island and he loves his people. He really wants to work for their benefit, which adds another layer to his motivations, like why he is seeking out eternal life. Because in the books, I always kind of imagine that... It, Sauron was just appealing to his pride and his greatness, and he just wanted immortality for himself. That's all he really cared about. He didn't care about the people, um, and he just cared about his own legacy. He didn't really care about the people. But in this version, I think maybe we're going to get um, a Farazone that is doing this for the people, or at least he believes he's doing it. Or he starts out doing for it the for the people. Right. And, you know, I, I really want to compare this to Breaking Bad, my favorite show of all time. Um, not just it. because it's my Go favorite it. show, but because one of the writers from Breaking Bad is one of the writers for this show. Ah, yes. One of the great things about Breaking Bad is the main character, played by Brian Cranston, he starts out as totally sympathetic. The only reason he's decides to cook meth is because he got a death sentence. He, for his son, too. For his, his family. Son's medical bills. Yeah, he's like, I'm going <laughs> to die. My teacher's salary and pension, like, I'm, I can't leave my family with nothing. So I'm going to die in a few months. I'm just, okay, I'll just cook meth. I'll make this sort of moral compromise for a very short period of time, make enough money that I'm out. Um, but then it kind of, you know, he lives a little bit longer. He starts getting better at this. And the concessions he's making, he keeps using his family as the excuse. He keeps using them as an excuse. And you believe, frankly, like the way the slow burn, the way the Breaking Bad plays out, you believe the excuse for a long time. He remains sympathetic sure, for a long time. but how far into the darkness will yes, you go? Yes, yes. Like by the end, and he, if anybody hasn't seen Breaking Bad, turn your headphones off right now. Um, because this is kind spoiler. of, spoiler, this is like the climax of Breaking Bad. Wait, I haven't, I have to admit something to you. What? I haven't finished it. Oh. I haven't finished Breaking Bad. Am I, can I? You can, <laughs> wait, can I take my headphones off and you say it? Take, take them off. I really genuinely haven't finished it. Take okay, them off. You talk. Take them off. Okay. 
Jen now has her headphones off, cannot hear me. <laughs> so the emotional climax of the story is in one of the last episodes, Brian Cranston's character, Walter White, admits to his wife, Skylar, that he was always doing it for himself. You know, he, he had been telling Skylar, I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for you. And she starts to say, do not tell me it's for us one more time. I'm sick of hearing that. And he immediately says, it was for me. And that's the first time he admits it to himself, that it was really all about serving his own ego. So he's trying to create something great and he's good at it. So he finally admits it. And I think that's the version of Farazone we may see here. Okay, I'm back. All right. All right. Now Jen is back. <laughs> So I just I just regaled the audience with the whole last couple episodes of, of Breaking Bad. But I think that Farazan <laughs> might be this character. Yeah. Oh, we definitely already see that. Even if he starts out with good intentions, um, we know for sure it goes awry. And I'm I'm very excited to see that depicted. And also to see his relationship with Tarmiriel play out. I think that is going to be it's yes. gonna be just chock full of some really good moments and he's definitely you know he's gonna be someone who's complex something to watch out for i think a major player actually who when i initially was thinking about the show i'm obviously thinking oh i can't wait to see galadriel i can't wait to see elrond but now i feel very excited to see the leaders of numenor almost like equally as excited to see them as to see galadriel do her thing yeah and i know a lot of people were kind of getting tweaked about the notion that some of the villains or people that should be villains might be getting a sympathetic portrayal because that's a very modern thing. And so people are like, ah, oh, this mm-hmm. like influence of modernity, you know, is Sauron going to be a sympathetic character? You know, people are grumbling about that. And I think Farazon kind of got lumped into that category of villains that should be just villains. And maybe he's going to be portrayed sympathetically. But the more I think about it, Man, he is such an interesting character when he has some sympathetic qualities. Sure. And that's also not giving Tolkien enough credit on writing. Yeah, right. He didn't write one-dimensional right. characters. Mm-hmm. He wrote very complicated characters. And even if you can say, well, he wrote within you know the medieval framework of like their motivations may have been more pure, they were still human characters right. who were flawed and who had their own demons. And so I disagree with, um, I think that's very reductive to yes, say. I totally agree. I, I think that one of the greatest tributes to Tolkien, I always say this, is he used the me- medieval framework, but he made it so much more three-dimensional than a lot of those stories. So he used the framework, but right. did so many different things with it. It's it, it's right. very almost like he was progressing that genre um, significantly. And people don't recognize that because it's such an old-fashioned genre. Nobody knows anything about it. Um, you know, it's not like familiar enough for people who are reading it to go, oh, he's doing a thing where like he's writing in a medieval frame, but then he's like changing it and inserting other ideas. People don't recognize that because they're not familiar enough with medieval writing. I'm not many familiar with it. Um, I just sort of learned this through, you know, learning from other people who know more about medieval type of stuff. But I think that's totally fascinating that he did that. It, he was using a medieval style of storytelling, but doing very non-medieval things with it. And left a giant imprint on it. I mean, he is our gateway now. Yes. So talking about Farazon's intentions, from the article, to portray Farazon, Gravel says he had to consider why people do certain things. Ultimately, well-meaning justifications can lead, lead down a slippery slope. Looking at the micro and macro of any situation is vital, he says. And some people can lose perspective of the macro, or they can lose perspective of the micro. And then all of a sudden, altruism altruism can creep in in a very bad way. 
And all of a sudden you're doing things for the greater good. And at first that's fine because it's for the greater good. But then how far is too far? How far is too far keeps coming up, doesn't it? And if you really think about, man, if I were alive in Numenor, I'd probably be one of the king's men. You know, I'm kind of very much a a pragmatist. I'm a realist. And if I'm living in a world where I haven't seen the Valar for thousands of years and no one's seen them, and it's kind of just like a part of your religion, it'd be easy to allow that to grow into superstition, to believe that it's superstition, just legend, just myth. And why, you know, why why are we still subservient to um, what the elves say about them? There is a story, a story, sorry, that uh, Tolkien wrote that speaks to just that. Mm. A short story yeah. in I've, in the Lost, I think it's in the Lost Road. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look this up for next time. But there's a conversation between a father and son. And the son is talking about, um, you know, why should we stay yeah. faithful, essentially. And the father is is so saddened to hear this. Right. And so perturbed by it. Do you know what story I'm referencing? No, you got it right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's from the... Yeah, I'll bring it, I'll bring it to the table. I think it's from the Lost Road. Yeah, that would be a good one to talk about, actually. Because it's, it's kind of ancillary to the primary Legendarium works, but it actually was very would be very good to take a look at. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're in a world where there are actual other immortal beings, and el- you're, you're hanging out with them all the time, and they come and visit, you know, every few years or dozens of years, and they're still looking nice and young and and baby-faced and you're starting to get some wrinkles. And the reason you're told to accept that is because, well, the Valar said so. And you're like, Valar? Where are they? Show me them. And why can't we go there? Yeah. 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 You would, I would, I totally understand why they would start to doubt, doubt that, you know, um, system. It's like, this isn't fair. And Farazon's like, I love my people. Why can't we have the good life? There's this good life out there. It's just across the water. You know, I can see Russia from my house. And I want to sail there. <laughs> and uh, why, you know, if you're in that position, you're a leader of Numenor and you love Numenorians and you're kind of doubting whether this mythology that you've been told uh, since you were a child is real, you could be very, um, you're very vulnerable to a Sauron mm-hmm. coming in and saying, yeah, this thing they're telling you, it's not true. It's a lie to keep from you what you are owed. You do deserve immortality and go take it. So I, I'm loving that kind of framework because I could, I could go with them on that journey for like, you know, a long ways. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And it's just such a human drive to want more and more and more. It is like our, you know, it's capitalism, <laughs> but it's deeply human. It's a deeply human yeah. desire. Um, mm-hmm. So I think we can all, we're all going to be able to relate to this story that we're going to see play out. Like if you... You will find a character and a storyline to connect to in this series. Absolutely. And for most people, I think it'll be the story of Numenor playing out. Maybe for some people, it'll be Sauron. And then those people, I worry about those people. (laughs) You know, I would be actually pretty happy if the only villain we see is Sauron. I I think he needs to be a villain. Like, I don't want to see the softer side of Sauron. You know, I I don't need to humanize him. Oh, no, no, no. I think we've talked about this. We don't need his back. Yeah, we don't need that. I mean, we can, you know, maybe there is some humanization to be had. Gandalf said even Sauron was not evil in the beginning. But we don't need to see the beginning. You know, that's not relevant to the story. So let's leave that way in the background. Right, right. But everybody else should be humans who are flawed and have sympathetic traits they love and they 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 hate and they're angry and they're generous and i want to see all these different aspects of humanity 
in every character in some sense. Um, and Farazan is going to be a great, great person for that. Last thing on Farazan, and you kind of reminded me, in the show, he's got a son. Now, in the books, we have no inkling that he has a son or that he was married. So we know that he marries Tarmiriel. That's how he lays claim to the scepter. So I assume in the show, his wife is dead or will die. I'm going to assume dead. But it's just- Again, it- medieval trope, remember? Oh, yeah, right, right. The dead wife, dead mother. So that's that's just kind of interesting to know. And having a son- in the mix is just also interesting. I never imagined Farazon having a son because it's not mentioned. But Farazon is trying to seize immortality. And what does an immortality, immor, Im, an immortal king of Numenor do with the scepter? He yields on to it forever. He passes nothing on to his son. So there's an interesting aspect of that there. You know, mm. without cause a falling out, you know, because clearly he's not considering... Well, he'll, he's probably telling himself that he's considering his son. This is for the good of everybody. I'm trying to get immortality for everyone. But, you know, in this immortal world, he's going to stay the king for a long, long time. And Kemen's going to be left out in the cold. And we've kind of heard that Kemen is this, like, spoiled, entitled brat who probably, as soon as Farazon becomes king, is like, great, I'm going to become king someday. And then Farazon's like, nope, not unless you kill me. <laughs> you know, so I don't know what's going to happen there. But that's just kind of, it has a, adds a whole other angle to his character. Or maybe he's a great dad and he loves his son and that's part of what um, humanizes him. I don't know. It, there's just a lot of opportunities. It sounds like it's a pretty fraught relationship just from the some of the panels that we got at, um, at uh, Comic-Con. Um, just hearing the actors talk about the relationships, it seems like a very fraught father-son relationships, whereas whereas with Isildur, you get to see him and his father, they have a, sort of a closer-knit relationship. So right. lots of different father-son relationships playing out um, all over the place. It's going to be very Game of Thronesian in the way that they're some of these characters maybe like vying for daddy's approval, <laughs> which is always, always fun to watch. <laughs> Well, since we've been talking about Farazon, I think it's a great segue to talk about my favorite subject, beards. Do you have beards? <laughs> Will you have beards? <laughs> Do you like beards? Sorry. Um, um, but I personally like a beard. You do like a beard. I like a little stubble. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Lots of people like beards. It is the mark of a man. And that's what I want to talk about here. Um, there's this little sort of minor lore question. Do Numenorians have beards? Now, I, I don't know if you're aware of this controversy, Jen, so I just want to ask you, in your mind, do Numenorians <laughs> have beards? Um, Because they are a people blessed by the Valar with longer life and youthfulness comparatively, I have imagined them in my mind as very young looking. Hmm. So I cannot say that I have imagined them with beards. However, I have absolutely no problem whatsoever if they have beards. Um, I, it just, yeah, doesn't bother me. That kind of that kind of nitpicky stuff just doesn't it it doesn't grind my gears so much. Yeah. But I have a feeling you have a take here. Well, it doesn't grind my gears either, but it grinds some people's gears for reasons that I want to be sympathetic to. Um, but let's just kind of look at let's start where we always should start. Let's look at the text a little bit. Actually, I don't want to look at the text. Let's look at the movies, because for people who are fans of the movies and now fans of Rings of Power, everything that they're being told is that the kings of Numenor have beards. Aragorn, 
always had a beard. He was rocking the stubble, you know, he didn't, he didn't have time to pack a razor and he wasn't shaving his, um, you know, chin with uh, the shards of Narsil, right? When he was, I don't want him clean shaven. I want him rugged. Vegan Mortensen. Yeah. Because that's, that's our conception of a man, rugged man. Um, so we get Aragorn has a beard. Denethor, no, no beard, but he does have some stubble. So yeah, he's grown facial hair. Same thing with Faramir, um, stubble, you know, not a full on beard, but stubble. Boromir, uh, I, if I do remember right, he does. Yeah, he has facial hair, but he's actually rocking a goatee. Definitely has a beard. Yeah. And also strokes it contemplatively right. at right. key moments. That helps. Now, Farazone, every picture we've seen of Tristan Gravel, mega beard. I mean, this thing is a monster. It is beautiful. Just glorious It's beard. awesome. And it, the black and gray, like mm. the almost um, Corella DeVille aspect of the like <laughs> black and white. Right. It contrasts is so great. It it's, really works. It's really him. a glorious beard. And as a person who, I mean, I currently sport kind of a short beard. I have grown a long beard. My beard never looked this nice. It was scraggly. It was disgusting. I looked like His a homeless very person. Groomed. I mean, I had a beard down to my like my chest, like down to the middle of my chest. It was it was a major beard, and I I rocked Prove that for it. like a year. Oh, posted on Twitter. Oh my god, I don't think I want to out myself <laughs> like that. It is gnarly because I also didn't take care of it very well. Like you're supposed to oil it and stroke you have to it groom it. You have, you to, have to manscape it and groom it. And I almost, mm-hmm. as a point of pride, did none of those things. So it was like frayed out <laughs> in every direction. It was all split. That ends. sounds like Peter's. My partner did the same. Went yeah. through the same phase. Yeah. Yep. Um, but no, Tristan Gravel. I you know props to him for rocking that beard. It is it's great. And we have also seen pictures of Elendil, also a very nice beard. It actually is very reminiscent of Viggo Mortensen's beard when he's crowned king. To your point, mm-hmm. they are kind of maybe doing that intentionally so that they look like each other. Um, so basically, all the royalty in the Numenorean line that we have seen in the films and now in the show. Rockin' beards, except for Isildur, but he's a young guy. He's the young son, so he, I bet you he gets bearded by the end of this series. Because, oh, in the prologue of The Fellowship of the Ring, also beards on Elendil and beards on Isildur. So they have really gone heavy into the, you know, real men have beards type of vibe. Now, the reason I want to talk about this is, in, in my mind, it is very, very clear from the lore in the books that they do not have beards. Actually, it was kind of fun researching this because it, you know, you read something in the books and you know it's true, but then you see it online. People are like, yeah, they don't have beards. They don't have beards in every like forum. And so then you kind of forget why that's the case. And so you just think it's really well established. But I always like to cite original sources when we get on this podcast. And so I was doing a little research. I was like, man, where does it say in the Lord of the Rings? What does it say in the Silmarillion? Trying to remind myself. And actually, it doesn't really say very clearly or very often. Tolkien, when he talks about beards, mostly talks about the dwarves, but it's sort of more of an inference. So we know it's very firmly established that elves do not have beards, um, except for Círdan being an exception. So he's kind of the exception that proves the rule. Um, the idea being, hey, if you're like really, really, really old as an elf, maybe you can get a little wispy beard. Um, but generally speaking, they're not bearded. And the idea was, well, the royal line of Numenor. They're descended from Elros, who is half elven. And so that sort of elvish blood has made its way. Elvish and very small part Maiar, that blood gets into the Numenorean line. And so, hey, the, the beardlessness of the elves makes its way into 
the royal kings of Numenor and that whole line. And this is the, the real source for it that, that people hung their hat on for a long time is from the unfinished tales in the history of Galadriel and Celeborn. So this is an editorial note from Christopher Tolkien. It says, quote, in a note written in December 1972 or later, and among the last writings of my fathers on the subject of Middle-earth, there, there is a discussion of the elvish strain in men as to its being observable in the beardlessness of those who were so descended. It was, uh, in Perrin's, it was a characteristic of all elves to be beardless. And it is here noted in connection with the princely house of Dol Amroth that this line had a special elvish strain according to its own legends. So it's really only confirmed explicitly in the Unfinished Tales, or at least that was the only source we had that was super explicit about it. And even there, it's Christopher Tolkien editorializing about an unpublished note that Professor Tolkien had written. Well, that unpublished note has now been published um, as part of the nature of Middle-earth. So I'm going to read a couple passages here. So this is the note itself, written in 1972, 1973, to Patricia Finney. Quote, and this is the professor himself, quote, When I come to think of it, in my own imagination, beards were not found among hobbits, as stated in text, nor among the Eldar, not stated. All male dwarves had them. The wizards had them, though Radagast, not stated, had only short, curling, light brown hair on his chin. Men normally had them when full-grown, hence Eomir, Theodot, and all others named but not Denethor, Boromir, Faramir, Aragorn, Isildur, or other Numenorean chieftains. So there you have it, as plain as you can get, the Numenorean kings and their line, no beards. Um, no beards. Now he concedes in this letter, which is again near the end of his life, that he says so in the text, that it's not stated. So for the hobbits, he's like, yes, it was stated. And it's actually in the prologue. That, that hobbits are beardless. Kind of interesting that he goes out of his way to say that. Um, the Eldar are beardless, but that actually isn't explicitly stated, according to Tolkien, although I think there's a little more of it than he remembered. Um, and so in his head, yeah, all right, the, those who in, were of Elvish uh, lineage or have that in their lineage, yeah, they're going to inherit the beardlessness. And there's an editorialization here in the nature of Middle-earth. And I, I'm going to read it in full because I think it's really interesting. Um, so in that note, answering a question about beards, that mentions some of the male characters which she and a friend did not imagine as having beards. This is the Patricia Finney who wrote in uh, asking a question about that. Someone was really interested. What's the, the beard status of my favorite characters? And I replied that I myself imagined Aragorn, Denethor, Imrahil, this is actually, this is the professor talking about the letter. I replied that I myself imagined Aragorn, Denethor, Imrahil, Boromir, Faramir as beardless. This, I said, I suppose not to be due to any custom of shaving, but a racial characteristic. None of the Eldar had any beards, and this is a general racial characteristic of all elves in my quote-unquote world. Any element of an elvish strain in human ancestry was very dominant and lasting receding only slowly, as might be seen in Numenorians of royal descent in the matter of longevity also. The tribes of men from whom the Numenorians were descended were normal, and hence the majority of them would have had beards. But the royal house was half-elven, having two strains of elvish race in their an ancestry through Luthien of Doriath, royal Sindarin, and Idril of Gondolin, royal Noldorin. The effects were long-lasting, e.g. in a tendency to a stature a little above the average, to a greater, though steadily decreasing, longevity and probably most lastingly in beardlessness. 
Thus, none of the Numenorean chieftains of descent from Elros, whether kings or not, would be bearded. It is stated that Elendil was descended from Silmarion, a royal princess. Hence, Aragorn and all his ancestors were beardless. Boom. Mic drop. You heard it here. <laughs> Debate settled. Well, as settled as it can be when the Tolkien forgets what he has written. So in our last episode, not uh, two episodes ago, when we talked about Tolkien's canon for dummies, we talked about how do you reconcile various versions of stories how do you, with his sometimes conflicting letters, because he would remember things sometimes incorrectly or change his tune. Yeah, rework or rework, rewrite. Yeah. Decide. Yeah. I mean, it was never... Very little was set in stone. There were some things set in stone, but a lot changed. There was often earlier versions right. too. So, and there is evidence in the text in the Lord of the Rings that Numenorians may have had beards. The Numenorian kings, and this comes from Daniel Stride's blog, "A Foolish Fellow." That's P H U U L I S H. So credit to him for putting some of this together. It was really helpful in short circuiting my um or shortening my my research here. But there is an example in the Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, Chapter Eight, The Stairs of Kirith Ungol. When Frodo and Sam start trying to, they're getting led towards, boy, I'm blanking, not Ungoliant, Shiloh. And they see a statue missing a head, right? And th- because um, Minas Morgul, all right, Minas Morgul was a, <laughs> a city of the Gondorian kings, right? Before it was taken over. So a lot of the statues and the architecture was Gondorian style. So there was a, a statue of what Frodo uh, identifies as a king. And the head had come off and he says oh and then he sees the king's head it was lying rolled away by the roadside look sam he cried startled into speech look the king has got a crown again the eyes were hollow and the carven beard was broken beard oh so why would the the gondorians carve a statue of one of their kings with a beard if as tolkien said near the end of his life he imagined them as never having beards right there's some incongruity there okay so this is all fun if it was just some minor lower point, I wouldn't go this far into depth because it's interesting and it's fun to debate these things, but what relevance does it have to the show, really? Who cares if they have beards or not? Well, the thing that I think matters about this is, and I've, I saw some people talking about this on Twitter and it really made my, my ears and eyes perk up and go, man, maybe this is something that's worth thinking about. If Tolkien said they have no beards and there's nothing else in the text really that would require them to give them beards. Why did Jackson decide to give them beards? Why are the show owners now deciding to give Farazon and Elendil beards? Because it's a decision. We're going to give them beards. And I think we can just kind of assume they decided, well, that makes them look more mature and kingly. That's the mark of a man. You heard me kind of say that earlier. And there's maybe something problematic about that. It's both old-fashioned and modern in a problematic way, that men should have beards. Like this notion of manliness. We want our men to be rugged. That's what manliness is. I'm not trying to like call you out because people can have whatever preferences they want in their, in their partners. But if we're like sending messages through our media about what a man is, what a man should be, you know, are they sort of falling into this sort of old-fashioned trope about manliness? And for no real reason other than to be, pay homage to that trope, So I saw someone on Twitter sort of comment on that, that they were unhappy that they were kind of falling into that trope because there's a lot of progress being made these days trying to unpack and 
undermine these harmful tropes about like what a man should be and what a woman should be, right? Gender norms, gender stereotypes are problematic in our culture. And actually, we talked about this in our episode with um, Marilyn Pekila. Tolkien, I think, was ahead of his time in terms of portraying his heroic male characters as having imbuing them with traditionally feminine qualities. Um, and then in one of his female characters, Eowyn in Lord of the Rings, imbuing her with some traditionally masculine qualities. She's has a warrior aspect. And also he played with that with um, Galadriel, describing her in her youth as of Amazon disposition. So he was actually kind of playing with that in a way. And it seems like Jackson and now Payne and McKay are kind of disregarding that aspect of it. And hmm. maybe it doesn't seem important. That's why we're kind of like, yeah, it's an unimportant lore point. But I could see it being important to some people. And it made me think maybe it should be important to me too. Maybe we should think about it. Yeah, maybe it's worth thinking about. I mean, I know there are masculine, traditionally masculine characters in the Rings of Power. For example, Arondir the Elf, who do not have beards. Um, does Halbrand have a beard? I know some of the younger Halbrand has stubble. do not. I don't think we see. Halbrand has stubble. Um, Kemen maybe uh, well, is beardless, but he's, you know, young. Kemen is beardless. Um, Isildur is beardless. Uh, it's definitely something I'm going to look, I'm going to pay a little more attention to, I think, from now on. Thank you for raising that. Now, I, I certainly understand point. why they would decide to do that. It's the okay. same reason that they give sure. elves pointy ears, right? It's a visual right. cue, man versus elf, right? None of the elves have beards. Right. We're going to give our men characters beards. And a lot of the, the men that we're going to see in the show are of Numenorean descent. So they're going to use that visual cue to help tell the story, right? I get that. It makes a lot of sense. But I think an argument could be made that they could have used that visual cue to greater effect if they showed the run-of-the-mill um, proletariat in the Numenorean kingdom as having beards like most normal men do. That's what Tolkien said. Most Numenorians, they're just men. But the royal line, because they have that elvish blood, they don't have beards. So it Mm. creates a sort of um, the existence of a caste system, right? This is a royal line of blood lineage, right? right? Distinguish them even more. Distinguish them from Um, the other men. Tie them to the elves in some way, um, using that visual cue to, to show their connection. So... They could have done I that. I think they made aesthetic choices based on our sensibilities. And, you know, we think about these things and perhaps, yeah, it's a larger conversation um, than we initially thought. So yeah, uh, thanks for doing your deep dive. <laughs> um, I feel like this episode has to be named, has to include something about beards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, a subtle thing that maybe has bigger ramifications. Obviously, in the lore, it has bigger ramifications. Because they probably didn't think about it. You know, they just thought, eh, you know, sure. we'll use a visual cue and we'll give our leaders nice flowing beards and, and let's not think twice about yeah, it. And eh, it does you know. look, yeah, and it does look, it looks good. I mean, well, to I, my sensibilities. I like a good beard. I mean, <laughs> you're partial to a beard. I'm very partial to a beard. I like my men with beards. <laughs> I tried. I, I did my best. So I have no problem with beards. It's not. Uh, I, I'm not grinding an axe about beards, but um, I just think it's a call to let's always try and interrogate our own perspectives and the assumptions we're making uh, about things. And even if I, I'm not implying any malintent by anybody, I am certain there was none. But um, always ask the question. I think with that call to action, we should call it quits today. 
Yes, folks. Um, I hope everybody is watching every trailer that comes out because there are teasers, I should say. There are tons of new teasers every single day coming out um, with just just small new details that we haven't seen before. Small bits of dialogue, small um, small footage, you know, clips that we haven't seen. I've been watching, um, I've been following LOTR on Prime very closely, Rings of Power, because they're just releasing all kinds of stuff every day. There's um, a wonderful new article in Time magazine about the Rings of Power. Uh, there's just so much to cover right now, and we're doing our best to keep up while also, you know, having a lot of projects in the works that are really exciting for this show in particular that we will announce shortly. So keep your ears peeled for that. Can you peel ears? Can you peel eyes? Where did that phrase come from? Keep your, your eyes peeled. The ground, that is a disgusting phrase. What, what is wrong <laughs> with the English language? All right. It, it clearly is late here when I start second guessing our, our phrases. All right. Tune in next time. We got great stuff coming up. Check out Watch Party, Wheel of Time. They're going to be going on hiatus here for a few weeks. They have been crushing it for over a year, and they're going to be taking a little bit of a break and then picking up again in, in a few weeks or several weeks. They're taking a well-earned break. And also check out Watch Party, A Watch Party of Ice and Fire, talking all about HBO's House of the Dragon series, which is premiering in about a week. So if you're a fan of fantasy, as I am, I will be watching that show Ooh, and listening so to their podcast. I'm so excited for that. I know. I'm so excited for the House fantasy, of the Dragon. The fantasy I mean, wars the are going to be insane. Yeah. It's going to be insane. I mean, Michael, we're just going to have so, we have so much on our plate. I know. Like, and what I love. watching card. Watch you. My weekend gonna is going to be weekend. insane. My weekend is just going to be, I'm going to be glued to the TV. My, I'm going to forget that I have children for about eight weeks, <laughs> at least on Sunday. Yeah, no, no. And I'm excited that the Rings of Power and House of the Dragon are going to be so different. They're both fantasy, but they're very, so very different stories. Different. I'm sure we'll be having lots of conversations about that. And definitely check out our sister podcast, uh, Watch Party of Ice and Fire, because they're going to be talking all about that. And probably they'll mention, I'm sure they'll mention Rings of Power in yeah. there as well. And we'll all get together to compare notes at the end of our respective seasons. Um, but Payne McKay said that, you know, with Game of Thrones, they didn't call it out specifically, but, you know, Game of Thrones is certainly at the top of the billing, that TV and streaming was at peak bleak, uh, you know, a couple years ago. Exactly. Everything is, and I, I love those shows. I'm not, you know, decrying it. I like peak bleak, but that's not Tolkien. And Tolkien is going to be a uh, just an incredible palate cleanser for that type of stuff. Oh. So I'm going to enjoy House of the Dragon, but I'm going to really enjoy the, just the eagerness and the beauty that is lord of the rings and i think a lot of people are going to rediscover their love for that type of subject matter as well hope springs eternal in the rings of power we can't wait oh that's nice um, that's a tagline maybe that's the title hope springs eternal in the rings of power <laughs> all right take us home all right uh thank you everyone for listening stay tuned for really exciting announcements and i do mean really exciting i know i say that a lot on this podcast but this time i really mean it we have really exciting announcements um, so thanks for coming along for the ride. Hope you've enjoyed. Like, share, subscribe. Tell somebody about our podcast. You're going to want to do so before the show premieres, believe me. Um, and we, we love sharing this fandom with you. So may the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time.
Anything to chat about for a couple minutes for the Grey Havens? What you been up to? <laughs> and now I'm seeing a beautiful baby on the other end. I think it's I baby, baby time. <laughs> Little baby hobbit. We could talk about my daughter has a rash. Should we talk about our children's rashes? <laughs> talk about your children's rashes. That's terrible. Tune in, folks, um, for rash information. Rashes. What about? Don't be too um, rash about the Grey Havens. I'm rashes. itching for a good Grey Havens have some topic. Kind of rash. Oh wow, you're on a roll here. Hold on, I, I, I'm gonna pull a rabbit out of the hat. Just let me just give me a second. You called your shot. This is like a Babe Ruth moment, pulling a rabbit out of the hat. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>